Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 34 with Seamus. He's a broadcaster and journalist with Byteside, which is his own company, as well as a freelancer for multiple different companies. We are up here in Sydney this weekend at the Intel Extreme Masters interviewing a whole plethora of different people, local and international. So we've got a bunch of podcasts coming out for you that are very interesting with very different niches in the esports industry. But today with Seamus, we talk a whole lot about journalism, which is to be expected, but a lot about how to pitch esports to traditional media and a lot of our discussion really is based around the likeness between pitching to media and the journalists, the editors, and the likeness between that and trying to get a sponsorship. There's actually quite a lot of crossovers. We also do talk a little bit about Shade Crew. We talk a bit about the likeness between the UFC and esports and talking about is it worth playing a tier two game and being the biggest fish in a small pond or should you consider transitioning into being a content creator and influencer and making the most out of the long-term benefits that may come with that so without further ado we'll kick into a quick word from our sponsors yet again before we introduce Seamus. PLE Computers is a retailer here in Australia that's supported big since the start. We like working with them because they're such a promoter, supporter and advocate for the grassroots and growing members within our community. They've been known to help out gaming teams with PCs when they're desperate to go overseas and play in tournaments like DreamHack and QuakeCon. They're supporting all of the local LAN gaming and grassroots gaming events and they're able to always provide some business advice to those who are reaching out. So if you're looking to grab yourself a gaming PC, looking to fit out your business as we did here at Big Esports, you can make sure to get in contact with the team at PLE Computers. Seamus, I am Sydney, mate. Welcome. How are you? Really, really good. Yeah, it's always exciting to get to this time of year and get to hang out at IEM. Yeah, it's interesting with the development in in local, you know, Australian esports and the fact that IEM Sydney just a couple of years ago really was the only thing on the esports calendar, but now we're seeing so many more things popping up. How are you dealing with the travel, both locally and internationally? (laughs) Um, It's actually a really good point that I think when you're trying to cover this stuff and do a good job of it. You want to be at the events, particularly if they're in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and so that does, yeah, it does start to kind of put on a bit of that extra pressure to um, to try to fill the, the calendar with, you know, and find the budget to jump on airplanes to, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, it's not that hard when you're going between cities. But, um, yeah, I, I feel like exactly like you say that I think IEM Sydney first time around Prove to a lot of other people that it's like, yeah, we should be holding these events in Australia. It always takes that first one, the damn wall is broken, and, yeah, now we get things like Melbourne Esports open to mm. to then en- enhance the classic Melbourne versus Sydney rivalry. Who has the better event? <laughs> what I always found interesting too about that is that it used to, all the esports people used to go to PAX and EB Expo because first off there was EB Expo and it was the only closest thing just because it simply had computers and video games. And then when PAX came around, you saw the esports people kind of leave EB and go to PAX because it was slightly closer. You had a few esports activations. Do you find that now with MEO, which is Melbourne Esports Open for those listening, and also now IEM and anything else that's coming up, they're starting to detract from PAX or is PAX still a must-go-to for people like yourself or those hardcore in the esports space? Yeah, I think when it comes to esports, I think you're right. PAX is definitely not a destination. Like I remember when they held the um, when they first moved to the convention center, and they had the League of Legends comp that was on. You know, just I can't remember. I don't think it was a final. It might have just been a, um, uh, you know, just a some stakes kind yeah, of a bit of an know, activation. Yeah, yeah. And um, and they absolutely were rammed just for just for that competition going on. And you yeah, know, the classic issue of suddenly. Everyone's filling the aisles around that stage, 
and the you know the yep. enforcers are panicking on how do we keep people moving around. Yep. Um, and then you know league didn't kind of come back after that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right that since then you know they sort of still do the staging and all the rest, but it's um, there's really kind of it's it doesn't feel like a destination event in that way that um, for esports fans. I think for me for everything else about that show, um, I think it's you know it is a must must attend event anyway. Um, and so in some ways, maybe that also, you know, for them, maybe they, they thought that's not the key priority for why people are coming to this event mm. compared to other things. Yeah, and no, I think you summed it up pretty well. So I guess we've already jumped straight into it, but can you just let the listeners know a little bit about yourself and kind of your relevant work in esports up until today? Yeah, um, so uh, I have been a journalist in the Australian uh, technology and games industry for about almost 20 years now. Um, and so, you know, definitely, you know, I was even late to the, to the game a little bit. So when I dig right back into the, where I started playing video games, um, it definitely sort of uh, put some miles on me for, you know, going to mates places and playing their Atari 2600s and their, uh, you know, early, uh, um, it was mostly Sega people around the area I grew up. I, I didn't get to okay. play Nintendo until a little later on. Uh, but you know, nineties came around, uh, got into PC gaming uh, I was lucky enough at the university I went to uh, that some mates had access to an engineering lab uh, where somebody had secretly installed Command and Conquer on all of the uh, the very good workstations, yep. and therefore we, we were suddenly for the first time ever playing uh, playing lands and just having some fun with these RTS games that were floating around. So that's where I fell in love with RTS at the time. And um, and then yeah, sort of a few other mates started to really sort of even get into it in in those early days, um, and I started hearing the the rumors of you know hey Starcraft is apparently starting to get really serious out there, uh, and yeah, just hearing about it from there. But I didn't first write about um, esports really until uh, I mean it's twelve years ago now, so I guess it's still sort of a, you know a good while. But uh, I first um, met the guys from Team Immunity. Uh, who were heading off to an esports World Cup in 2007, and uh, yeah, I you know got asked if I wanted to essentially go as like an embedded reporter and you know cover the this Australian team going to a big overseas event for one of the first times, uh, and yeah, that was you know really great experience. I wrote that for Fairfax, um, so that you know it was a big feature across uh, you know their kind of national like I know it ran in the Age and in the City Morning Herald. Um, but, yeah, what's funny was I felt like, you know, when I look back on that, it kind of covered a lot of the same themes that still get covered in mainstream a lot, which is, you know, hey, there's these people getting paid to go and play a video game. Like, can you believe this thing is is being taken seriously now? Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think while I wrote a few things back then, um, I had a bit of a gap where I was just focusing on other things. But about two years ago was where I really started to just feel like it was important to get back involved that the the wheel was finally kind of really turning and that there was the opportunity to start talking about the the deeper and more interesting things about why this why this category really matters and why other people should start caring about it. Yeah, and is that the is that the pull for you really storytelling and trying to drive the the industry in that aspect because you know obviously there's a lot of people who are in journalism such as you that that do end up creating their own esports teams or working more in the hardcore business space. But for you, it seems that there's a lot of focus specifically on journalism and storytelling. So is that your real passion? Yeah, yeah, it really is. I feel like over the years, um, you know, I've written about everything from, uh, from you know, really hardcore business technology type stuff 
uh, through to you know games and and digital culture type stories. Mm. Um, but even if I'm writing about really serious business tech, when I'm talking to those people, I'm I'm trying to get out of them why that excites them, you know, and and so I've always enjoyed trying to make make mainstream people care more about these things that are super geeky, nerdy niche yeah. topics. Um, and so, you know, that's been literally, I remember once writing a story about, you know, call center technology, but finding a cool angle because the people who ran call centers uh, actually found they were kind of annoyed at the way call center software was being used to make customers annoyed. And they were like, it could be used so much better. And it was like, that's actually a cool story. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's it. I think as I've kind of woven through, I feel like ultimately I love just focusing on, you know, the future of dot, 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 you know, whatever industry um, I love kind of sinking my teeth into how do we show people, you know, what's coming next? Why is it exciting? Uh, and yeah, it felt like, yeah, when I started to refocus in this space, it felt like a great time as well to um, start trying to kind of, you know, I now do an esports moment podcast. And it was partly that idea of going, let's say I only do that podcast for, you know, a year or two years or something. Um, there's, I just felt like there's so many cool things going on right now that, I'm like, I love the idea of just capturing what everyone was thinking about right at this moment in time as well. And, yeah. you know, because that's going to change again in in two years and it'll be interesting yeah. to think back on the kinds of conversations we have right now in a category that's changing so quickly. Yeah, and it's, you know, I'm starting in my, and this is a developing thought for me, so I'm going to think about what I'm talking about, yeah. but I'm starting to see a lot of similarities between the UFC and with esports not only in the fact that it's digitally first, it's streamed a lot online, there's personalities and there's drama and such, but some of the development and the stories, like you were saying, seems to be that. I've watched some of the history of the UFC and, you know, when it got bought for only a couple of million dollars yeah. and the issues that they faced, people not taking it seriously, people thinking it's stupid. Obviously they had the issues with violence and you do have some of that in esports as well with, with mm. Counter-Strike especially and things like that. And I'm finding that interesting narrative and definitely draws a point of what you are saying is that the discussions that you have at that time and not like what you have in the future. And even for those who are in esports with a startup, a lot of the frank conversation with a startup is how are we going to make enough revenue to survive the next six months? And it's yeah. a lot where esports is right now, whereas it's very unlikely to me that you know Manchester United are sitting around in the room saying, all right, fellas, we've got three months of runway left. We need to raise some money or we need to find some sponsors because you know sponsors are knocking on their door. Yeah. And, yeah, I think what has really impressed me at the moment is uh, the more companies I've been talking to, whether it is the people like game developers through to team owners at the moment, it it feels like they know that we've we've broken through that threshold where they don't have to start a PowerPoint deck with here's what esports is anymore. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, obviously they you know broach kind of the, the critical numbers or the critical aspects of of what it is and why it matters. But I think you know they've got as you said, there's people now sort of coming to them, uh, you know, knocking on their door to have the conversation about, you know, how do we get involved, not like what is this thing anyway and why would we ever want to be partnered with you? So I think at least, yeah. you know, in, in that sense, as you say, when, when it's that critical issue of trying to find the right partners to get involved with something, um, at least it feels like they're probably more at the global level than the local level, but, you know, it, it feels like it's easy for people to start those conversations because more people are getting it. Yeah, definitely right. It's no longer the famed four newsy slides. 
that was screenshotted <laughs> off LinkedIn or, or Twitter that started at the start of every single presentation. <laughs> and same, you know, the public facing presentations and the private too. So, you know, definitely nothing against Nuzu, but I got sick of seeing those after <laughs> over quite some time, yeah, 20 presentations later. Yeah, that seems really interesting. So I guess just, you know, to set the narrative for those who are listening and for those who are listening, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 34, the number 34 for any of the show notes or links to what we talk about today. But I really want to talk to you, Seamus, a lot about pitching esports to traditional media. So we talked off my off recording, off podcast a little bit about how one of our most popular podcasts, which is one you're in the audience for, is how to get non-endemic sponsorship. And, mm. you know, that's a path and a topic that people have been talking about a lot. But one topic that I don't think people talk about enough in esports is how to actually pitch to traditional media. We've talked about what a sponsor's looking for, how to get in there, you know, behind their eyes and, and understand what they're thinking of when you pitch to them. But generally in esports, we usually just see that screw the traditional media narrative, but without actually understanding how to harness that for the best. So I guess you're, you know, one of the best insider people that I know. So <laughs> I wonder, I want you to help us out a little bit. Can you walk us through a bit of a roadmap? Let's say that that you're an editor and, and I'm an esports team that's just completed a large raise, you know, with some financial money without contacts in this space. What what kind of things are you looking for for me to pitch, even with that specific example or others? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, the really big thing always comes down to trying to know, uh, know enough about the outlet that you're targeting that you can throw in suggestions for what what is the story that their audience is going to care about, you know, and yeah. like that kind of, I, I totally understand that some people might find it sort of, you know, almost like hard work to, you know, to, to flick that switch and go, you need to sit in the, sit in the perspective of the reader of that thing. Um, because in the end, yeah. I think the mistake a lot of people make is that they care so much about the thing that they're building that they think it's fundamentally newsworthy. Right. And the hard thing is that, particularly when it comes to traditional media, you know, yes, technically in the digital era, there are, you know, thousands of, you know, you know there's unlimited page space in the digital era. Yeah. But when it comes to, uh, you know, newspapers commissioning people to write something, uh, there are very limited budgets. Mm. Uh, and that means they only want stories that they think, yes, this is going to get traction with our audience and fundamentally, so for me, where I write for, you know, regularly for Australian Financial Review, um, for ABC Online, and then for a couple of sort of pop culture outlets, and then, you know, it, it's a good point. Like even the Esports Observer, where I write very much about esports, it's always about the business of esports. Yeah. And, and for them, it, you know, that has to mean that it's adding something to that larger conversation about how is the industry evolving, uh, you know, what does this particular story add to that question of, you know, of how sponsorships, how teams, how funding, uh, you know, how is that sort of transitioning you know, over time to, you know, improve in the ANZ sort of context, that means, you know, well, okay, there's real traction in that market now. We've now seen that there's this many dollars being invested in teams or, you know, or new kinds of sponsors are coming into the market. Um, but it's knowing that you have to you have to show that part of the story to help me to then pitch my editor about why this story matters, yeah. um, not just think that it's like, but yeah, I mean, we're we're a cool team, and we we want your help to get noticed. It's like I I love the idea of helping people to get noticed, but it means you do have to have a story to tell as as part of putting out that press release. Yeah, and it's 
exactly similar, like I said before, to pitching a sponsor. A lot of the time, if you're talking to a local Corsair or Razor rep, they're not necessarily making the final decision, as with you as the journalist and the writer. So you need to use you or you need to use a local Razor rep as your evangelist to then push up and they become you know, almost like your manager in that aspect when you're yeah. trying to push that story. What's what's the main pushback you get from the editors when talking to the traditional media, when trying to push a story to them? Um, you know, the the classic one that is still around is we wrote about that recently and yeah. you know, literally using esports as a catch-all for we wrote about that as a thing. Um, and, and that's a tough one because in the end they're the editor um, but – you know, I, I still feel like that falls back to you know, me as somebody who wants to help people get why this thing is important. Um, it is, you know, I need to nail my own pitch for why this story is different to other stories. Um, and so, yeah, so it's all about trying to really make sure that they see what what their very mainstream readers are going to care about attached to this story. And that's where I think, yeah. um, you know, I'm having probably a bit more luck with, uh, the slightly more sort of, you know, opinion pieces that are about a specific thing that's happening but is about, you know, being given the licence to to kind of advocate a little bit and explain a little bit why this, you know, this one thing that happened speaks to a bigger picture that, uh, you know, that is happening in a market. I think the other pushback uh, really, particularly, I guess, in the, in the business newspaper sort of context, uh, you know, for them it is always that question of, you know, in their tech section, uh, you know, if I'm writing about esports, that's sharing the same pages that they would interview the CEO of Microsoft. You know, so for them, it's not ever really that exciting if it's like, oh, I, I got to speak to the guy who runs, you know, this new Australian team that has some interesting funding. For them, it's like, yeah, what's that really mean in the in the wider business landscape? Mm. Whereas, say, um, you know, the announcement of you know Gfinity Australia creating a partnership with Hoyt Cinemas. Uh, that was the kind of story where for them they're like, yeah, that has implications in a whole shifting entertainment landscape because yeah. a cinema chain has just decided that they want to find this way to attract this kind of an audience and, you know, and look at a whole different thing. So, yeah. again, there's there's always has to be that sort of that bubble of what does this mean about the shifting landscape of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And are they looking for, because most of what we talked about so far is news, are they looking for specific narratives? Are they looking for news pieces? Are they looking for investigative, you know, storytelling journalism? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think uh, a lot of um, a lot of the stuff that I'm pitching is, is going to be usually around um, a story that might end up taking, you know, a few weeks to piece together for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they want, they want sort of, you know, they want good quotes plus some extra details about, you know, what's going on in the industry. You know, they, they want sort of a fleshed out piece. They don't, they don't just want the, that kind of news, which is essentially, you know, three bullet points, uh, you know, and the basic conclusion sort of a story. Mm. Um, because, again, for them, they're like, that's, it's, that's only going to be about the niche of the category. Um, so, you know, I think... I think in that mainstream sense, uh, they want something that speaks to that bigger picture, and that does mean it ends up being a little bit more feature oriented. Um, yeah, I recently had a piece for AFR with you know interviewing Chinglish and Bajo about sort of that you know evolution of professionalizing streaming and how you kind of make success in that category. But uh, yeah, I wrote that piece late last year, and it ran <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, because while, you know, even once they commissioned it, uh, you know, just as far as their editorial priorities go, uh, you know, sort of week after week, there were just various things that kind of bumped it as a lower priority topic. Yeah. And so in that sense, you know, they're also careful about something that is too newsy because they're like, if we if we end up running this in three weeks' time, would anybody care? Yeah. Um, and ahead of the major events in Australia, you know, things like, you know, IEM and things like MEO, uh, you know, they'll be interested in, in a story if there's a good feature angle, like you say, not just the news of its back. They're like, yep, yep. you know, we'll cover it the first time it, it comes around. We won't necessarily cover it every single year. Um, but if there's a good feature angle about something specific that's changing or, you know, the people behind the scenes have a cool story to tell, whatever it might be, then, yeah, if they, if they see the hook, then they will run something that is time sensitive like that. Yeah. And does it, does it become disheartening for you as the person writing these articles? And my other question is for maybe even, I don't know if you can name specific publications or not. What, what is their golden child? What, where do you want esports to be? For example, you could say it's newspapers and the AFL here in Australia. If you're going to write about the AFL, you're likely to have an article every single day in the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I know that, um, you know, when I talk from from the pitching perspective to me, I know that everyone in the games industry wants to be in the AFR because that's definitely the kind of prestige newspaper for for showing off, uh, you know, where they manage to get themselves, I guess, in the PR mm. context. But um, And everyone's raising money and everyone's a startup, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a really big deal. But I think... Um, yeah, you know, when you're talking about the sort of disheartening side of it, it's like, you know, I feel like that is I just always chalk it up to that's my challenge is to is to try to find the really good story that's kind of lurking inside something. Yeah. Um and yeah, you know, and I love going through that process of trying to find a good angle. I think the thing that yeah, that is kind of disappointing sometimes, it's almost more when you know, when companies like when people in the games industry can be very persistent about something where I'm trying to kind of help them to understand that, you know, that just isn't the kind of story that that level of, you know, media outlet is going to be interested in at the moment. Yeah. Um, or, you know, that they just, they need a lot more attached to the idea that, you know, we've got a cool new company launching. And so I, it's probably even that dynamic around, um, you know, that, and again, I completely understand it, but they'll sometimes feel like, you know, can you help support us because, you know, you you understand our industry and you care about it, so can you support it by writing a story? And it's like, but that's, you know, yeah. I like, I, I love the way things are evolving, but it's like my job as a journalist is to write the stories that are worth writing for the audience that a particular outlet uh, is targeting. And, yeah. you know, and sometimes that just means that you're like, this isn't their story or, you know, there isn't much more I can do about that. Um, and when people are persistent, you know, it, it's that classic issue as a journalist of, you know, you get hit on so many vectors for, you know, emails and DMs and all sorts of angles where people want to pitch you. Um, the hardest part is trying to remind people that if you pitch me well and you pitch me like a good idea and it's got the right hook to it um, and you and you never waste my time, I'm like, I will always answer the phone for you because, you mm. know, I need good ideas for stories. But the second people shift into that time-wasting column, it's like I don't want to answer the phone to you anymore. I, I don't yeah. have enough time in the day. 
Um, and so, yeah, that can be that tricky thing where if I do get disappointed, it's probably more on the side of of when you try to give tips to people in the industry to kind of get their targeting right, but they just keep banging on the door anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of PR tips that you've just given there to anyone who's looking to pitch products to reviewers to, you know, journalists like yourself is that you want to pitch a good story at all times. And it's even the same as if you're an employee and you've got a boss, you know, if you're doing good work for them most of the time, if you do have to call in sick or if you do have an issue with a project, they're going to be a lot more lenient on you in the fact of when that comes up and say, well, you're reliable. You usually pitch me a great story and this time it's not that great, but maybe I'll cover it because you're now elevated to a position where I can and things like that Mm. too. Yeah, and I mean, I go ahead. Yeah, it's really interesting. You talked about the Australian Financial Review as well in the AFR. What what is a lot of their interest? Is it is it around capital raising? Is it around because there's not really any teams in Australia that have hit say a Series A yet? Is it when we start hitting that? Are they really going to start paying attention then? Is that a benchmark for them? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good way to think about it. Is for them, it is essentially milestone coverage. You know that it's yeah. it's like their readers are not people who you know are worried about keeping an eye on the esports scene on a you know on a weekly basis, but Exactly right. The the first team to have a particular, you know, fundraising level, you know, hit a certain tier or to, you know, bring on board a certain kind of sponsorship opportunity or, you know, like mm. partnerships, different things, they, they're keen for me to write that, you know, the first time it happens. The second, third and fourth times, then it's kind of like, well, that t- we've already crossed that threshold in that industry. Yeah, okay. And so it might not be as exciting. But- um, I think the big thing for them is is really around th- that big picture idea of uh, you know the changing attention landscape amongst young people, and that this is something that sits in that space. So, yeah, when we're writing stories about um, you know how Twitch is kind of becoming that core audience space for you know certain demographics, or when you know uh, you know just different aspects to how esports as an industry. Uh, for them, they probably think of it as this entertainment category is doing these things right now, um, more so than the idea of they, you know, they care about video games full stop as as a as a sector. Yeah, interesting. And changing tack just a little bit, as you know, you could call yourself, I guess, an esports evangelist or someone who's trying to help grow the scene, but also as a journalist, how? How do you cover drama and bad news when you when you're asked to within the industry? Is there a tussle within that you maybe you want to suppress it a bit because you want esports to grow, or is you really just trying to get to the narrative? How do you deal with that internally? Yeah, look, I mean, I I feel like you can't, you know, particularly as a journalist, it's like I you can't su- suppress stuff that you feel like is bad news, and I feel like yeah, you know, as an industry, probably have to do a better job of tackling head on um, some of the bad news. Yeah, you know, I've. Started, you know, I've probably written a couple of pieces recently that I do feel like I could have written earlier um, that are tackling that idea that, you know, I've definitely been on a number of those, you know, breakfast TV debates about, you know, is violence in video games ruining kids' brains? And it's like, no, yes, I will, I will defend games as a, you know, positive and exciting thing for people to engage with and all those sorts of discussions. Um, yeah. But we keep avoiding the other side of that debate, which is the idea that there is a cultural problem within video games that does make a lot of people not want to participate and they find it, you know, scary and intimidating. And, you know, what are the things that we can do to to make that part of what games is get better? And, and you know, I realise when I'm talking to parents about these things, I, 
I can talk to them about the virtues of letting their kids start getting involved with esports. But the flip side of that is to also encourage that parent to pay attention to the kinds of people they're meeting through, you know, chat and through Reddit and through all kinds of, you know, weird parts of the internet because, you know, you just have to kind of have a grasp that there is a lot of kind of weird seedy stuff attached to the games industry out there that's part of those environments. And we just, you know, by starting to talk about it more openly, it can hopefully help us to sort of just say, yeah, we we, we can't pretend that it's not part of, of what's going on within this industry and that, you know, it's it's something that people need to be aware of. And therefore, the more aware of it we are, hopefully the more we can start to sort of say we have to change this. Yeah, and it's and it's an interesting it's an interesting PR narrative. Um, you know, there's there's two there's two topics that I want to breach out of that. Number one is the bleed over from games into esports. Obviously, esports based around games, but a different industry. Mm. And the other one definitely is yeah, the public facing PR part talking about financial risks and financial issues. You know, I guess what I tell most non endemic companies who are outside of esports is that I'm biased only towards esports. But it becomes hard when they say, you know, are these companies making money? Uh, in specific sections, you have to say, well, no, they're not. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, some things like that can be a little bit difficult. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love for you to tackle kind of the first one about the crossovers between gaming and esports. Where do you draw the line? Where do you see maybe some good similarities or good crossovers between the two? And what are some crossovers you think that we should maybe try to cut the cut the umbilical cord with? Yeah, you know what? Like, I, I actually feel like when it comes, you know, I've got uh, kids, one's in high school and one's sort of in late primary school. And, one of the things that I'm really more and more moving toward is the idea that, you know, esports, I hope, can be, you know, the real sort of, uh, you know, the shining example of, of how positive games can be if we can start to do a better job of promoting, you know, grassroots participation in esports. You know, literally like the yeah. local team side of of creating, you know, whether it's kind of the cool, you know, high school programs that we're seeing out of, you know, out of meta and things like that. Um, I feel like that stuff can help to show that that games are actually about you know teamwork and cooperation and and leadership skills and you know and building all those kind of classic things of you know you've got teammates that rely on you if you're participating in this sort of an environment all those things that people attribute to traditional sports are available within esports uh, whereas I think you know when you think about creating that dividing line about people playing games online in a way that is just a sort sort of the fun and the, you know, and just the relaxation, killing time, having fun with some friends on the internet. Um, I feel like that is, it's harder to sort of point to that and say to a parent, this is a really sort of, you know, valuable and your kids pursuing playing at an elite, you know, like mm-hmm. I really see that pursuit of excellence is that thing that really stands out for me as, as the power of esports within that wider sense of the games industry and then pointing towards esports as going, this is, this is where you start to pursue a dream of, you know, of, and even if you don't get there, there's all these values that come from the pursuit of excellence within games. Mm. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's probably, you know, part of that line. And, you know, I, I still cover sort of other things within games in general, but I absolutely sort of focus most of my attention um, these days on esports because I really feel like those values are are attached to it and and yeah show off the best of what games can be. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good summary. And touching on like what I said before, I definitely not saying that I tell you know potential investors that people are making money when they're not, but sometimes it is hard within to tell the honest truth that 
you know, maybe this industry isn't right for X investor or X brand to become involved in. So how do you, how do you tussle with that as well as a journalist, you know, looking to find the truth? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I really liked, um, yeah, I was having a discussion earlier today with, uh, yeah, Mihal Blihash from ESL. And I think he put it really well um, in that, you know, sometimes a company just isn't the right company, you know, like, and, and, you know, when it comes to trying to work out that, that differential between, you know, is this thing going to be successful for a company or not? Um, it's like, you know, do they, do they know what, what do they think they're buying versus, uh, you know, what are they actually buying? Uh, I think really trying to grasp that idea that there are so many layers to what can, you know, go wrong if, you know, if a thing doesn't quite work out, let's mm. say that someone does sponsor a team and then six months later, they're no longer a sponsor of a team. Um, you know, there's so many aspects right now where it's like, well, that could be that, a te- you know, that they're just dipping their toe and they're getting their first learnings and they could be back later. And, you know, or it might be that they just sort of went, oh, like we got, <clears throat> you know, we got flamed and memed so hard that we just weren't ready for it. You know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, yeah and that happens. Yeah, yeah. It's like that it, it's just sort of part of that dynamic at the moment of, um, you know, of brands also trying to learn how to, how to work with this space. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, if something goes wrong for one company, it doesn't mean it's going to go wrong for another company because, you know, maybe the person driving the campaign didn't know what they were doing, you know, mm. or they didn't let the partner that they were working with give them the advice they needed to make it work well. Yeah. Um, you know, none of those things mean that a failure is a failure for the entire industry. Um, I mean, flip side to that, right? When we think about, you know, Heroes of the Storm being shut down, um, you know, within the Blizzard ecosystem as an esport. Uh, I was at uh, IEM Katowice earlier in the year and at an esports forum event there, it was, I hadn't realized until sort of that event how much of an impact uh, that was kind of having as a spillover for for the esports industry in general as, you know, lots of people that they're having conversations with. It was the first time that they ever had this clear sense of, you know, like an esport can shut down, like that's a thing that can happen. And it was like, well, again, in that model of esport, you know, in, in the, you know, sort of franchise and the, uh, you know, company controlled version of an esport, that is a thing that can happen. Um, so, but yeah, but that suddenly meant a lot of people stepped back for a moment and thought, how do, how do we deal with the idea that, you know, a thing that we're investing in and partnering with teams in could just turn around and not exist for some reason, you know. Yeah. And as much as we have, you know, Counter-Strike and sort of StarCraft and lots of these esports that I think, you know, we're past the point of people going, oh, like games change every two years. And it's like, well, we've got actually some pretty serious longevity in in some areas of esports now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I think stories like that one definitely showed that, you know, in the end, are, are you able to just kind of go, you know, sweep it under the carpet? It's like, no, but if you can start to kind of explain to people why there's so many layers to, you know, exactly why these decisions get made. And in the end, you know, each business is its own business and they're making their decisions their way. Then, you know, hopefully at least it helps these people to maybe in the immediate sense, they might kind of back off a little bit and get a little bit scared. Um, But maybe that, you know, plants that seed where they start to realize that, you know, that it's just growing pains. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's two, two main points I take from that. Number one is, showing the honesty and integrity, not only to yourself, but brands wanting to come in. And then it doesn't become the crypto bubble where everyone says going to the moon, going to buy Bitcoin, Lambos, you know, horizon (laughs) state, et cetera, et cetera, Ethereum. And that instantly makes 
you know, the, prof- the proper professionals step back and go, well, this is not an industry I want to be in because there's too much hype mm. and, you know, too many promises. You never want to promise a, a return, for example. Yeah. And, yeah, definitely touching on as well. I mean, as a business, what we do at Business in Games, working with a lot of companies, you identified one of the reasons I find it exciting that we're a subject matter expert because it's all about positioning. Like you said, you know, some companies will come in, the branding will be wrong, what they're saying will be wrong, and they get memed on. Even if it's to the fact of, I think it was ESPN Esports recently tweeting the terrible Twitter graphics that look like they were made in word art and they just got <laughs> hammered online from people. And, you know, any all publicity is good publicity, you can say, sure. But sometimes it doesn't come across right at all yeah. unless you do it very well like Dr. Pepper and you go the complete opposite way and make it hilarious and over the top, absolutely unperfect. Yeah, and have a great activation in regards to that. Yeah, and I think if, you know, as well learning that, yeah, if you're getting memed really hard and you can really quickly be flexible and embrace the fact that everybody is jumping on you. Uh, you can turn, like, you can judo that, you know, into a really positive thing. Yeah. If you kind of put your hands in the air and kind of go, yeah, you got us, you know, and, yeah. and like people's opinion of a company can shift so quickly if they're willing to laugh at themselves and to kind of realize that. In so many areas on the internet, it's like, well, if you're the target of a joke, you can pretty quickly become part of the joke and everyone kind of is laughing along with you rather than at you if if you can make the right route and you know, write them make the right move quickly so that people see that, you know, you haven't just kind of gone into hiding because, you know, you you're suddenly worrying about what people are thinking about you. Yeah, that's a great I like the judo quote. Yeah, we can hip throw this in a new direction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And you're hundred percent right. Esports people love that. And definitely every single, you know, every single discussion I have with someone outside of the industry, it always boils down to narrative with esports. It always boils down to being genuine, being open palm and being honest and being open with people. Even if that is an AMA on your Twitter, your official, you know, verified, you're an oil company, you want to get into esports. If you do a chat with the CEO and and the esports leader of the company sits down and says, this is why I like esports, because a lot of the time, it's a bit of a weird analogy, but a lot of the time what I say is that esports is like the unloved child where for so many years we've been punching up saying, please care about us, please care about us. And then all the people in, you know, the people in suits in quotation marks have been saying, no, you're not big enough. We don't care. You're just kids. Go to your basement and play your games. And now they want that validation. They want the the gray hair in a suit who's the CEO of a big multinational to sit down on a camera in his face and say, look, I don't really understand esports, but it looks really cool yeah. and I like it and that's why we're involved in it. People go, hell yeah, I don't care that you make billions of dollars in profit. Maybe you don't pay tax. doesn't matter to <laughs> yeah, me yeah. anymore. Like now I'm validated. People care about me. Yeah. And I think, yeah, for me, one of the big things I keep hearing from, you know, again, people who run teams and tournaments is the idea that, you know, that this is such a savvy audience that they actually really love, like that they connect so well with a company that gets involved almost fundamentally because, they sort of know that sponsorships and, you know, and various kinds of brand integrations are the thing that make this industry profitable and that means the industry will still be around in the future, you know. So I think um, it's something that I, you know, love trying to help point out to people is, um, you know, for an audience that is so cynical and can kind of jump on you quickly if you do it wrong, um, they are savvy enough to know that, like, if their favourite eSport had no ads running on it at all, they're like, why aren't there any ads? Does this mean it's not going to be here next year? You know, and yeah. that's a, and therefore when the ads start to arrive, they're like, 
thanks, you know, dare iced coffee or you know, whatever it might be that, yeah. um, you know, I like I'm, from the Gfinity stuff last year, I remember seeing how that dare ad that was running kind of all through the entire year. I loved seeing that at the moment that ad came on, like the Twitch chat just filled with the calamari joke that was part of the thing. You know, and you're like, everybody yeah. knows this thing so inside out now, but I bet an awful lot of them, if they're standing at the fridge at, at their local convenience store, is going to go, oh, I will have a dare just to just because yeah. I, I might as well try one. Yeah, and post it on Twitter <laughs> for the meme, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 100% right. And like you were saying too, not only are they aware just inherently, but also even if you look at some of the stats, so – you know, for those listening, people most people know that we launched Shade Crew recently as a separate thing, you know, kind of an influencer collective in MCN, similar to Phase 100 Thieves or Click Crew and such. And, you know, looking at our demographics here, a core audience of 80 to 35, 76% of those are also tertiary educated. And we know via statistics that a large percentage of those will then be business tertiary educated. So it shows that, you know, these aren't just kids in their basement or they're not 40-year-olds in their, in their grandma's basement. Yeah. You know, they're people who are paying attention to these things. And you're 100% right. When a, when a league launches or a team launches with no sponsors, generally you get questions from people saying, why are there no sponsors? Is this team going to die? And Like, where's their funding coming from? Mm. You know, and people don't get invested. And it's happened a lot before where teams have, you know, come into a new season with no sponsors and you can see the Reddit threads and the Twitter comments start piling on. You know, where's Razor? It's not on their jersey anymore. You know, where's all this kind of stuff? What's going on with this team? Should I be following them? Yeah. Yeah, you're 100% right. So I guess changing, you know, let's let's change it a little bit and um, have a bit of a chat about something else as well. So I've been reading a lot on LinkedIn about esports-only media and those focusing on different sections across the whole broad narrative of esports. So you obviously mentioned, you know, one category that you work in with Esports Observer covering a lot of the business side of things. There's things like hltv.org, which covers specific one game, Counter-Strike. There's other medias that cover one game, two games, multiple, or the influencer market or a bit of the memes and, and the funny things that are going on. And it, some of the really interesting things from the articles for me was talking about how many have come and gone over the years, what are the niches and what are the narratives that, that pushes them. So I want to understand a bit more from you. You know, you're working with with Byteside, which is your company, covering a lot of this esports narrative as well. How do you find the viability of esports-only media in the current market? Does it have to be... Will, will your answer say that it needs to start at a certain scale, like an esports team? Do you need a certain amount of funding? Do you need one specific niche to fit in or do you need to have some other narrative or way to push into the market? Yeah, I I wouldn't want to just start a pure esports business, right, like in terms of media, you know, in that most of most of what's out there and succeeding is kind of succeeding, you know, through the goodness of a lot of writers earning next to no money. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, and – yeah, that's kind of sadly the way things have to work sometimes to to get things you know to get things moving. Um, and I have no problem as well when it's more the it's like the the idea of it's more of a collective or it's a bunch of people you know sort of really kind of working together to create something. Um, I you know I I kind of have problems when it's that more that idea of well we're paying people you know five dollars a story to write you know you know lots of stories so that we've got hundreds of stories. It's like that's not necessarily long term sustainable either. Um, yeah. So I think you know the the trick in that area then for me is I feel like within sort of the context of trying to do things with Byteside is you know I felt like there was a space to do a podcast about esports, um, yeah, and sort of bring the 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 sort of more behind the scenes business type discussions um, that I like to do, you know, and give that a space to sort of take place. 
But I think, um, you know, the, the larger idea of BiteSide is very much about sort of digital culture and technology as well um, so that it is more about creating, you know, a, a network of podcasts and a place for sort of feature articles and things to sit um, that explore sort of different ideas uh, more than just the idea of, you know, I feel like esports, when the more mainstream it becomes, the more it is essentially about, you know, another form of digital entertainment and digital culture. Mm. Um, and, you know, and again, when we see all the kind of the big, you know, pop out moments of, you know, Drake and Ninja and all those kinds of things that always kind of get brought up. But yeah. I think it's that idea of what was exciting about that as a moment was it was different forms of entertainment sort of meeting each other. Um, and, you know, and just the fact that other kinds of people from other industries were suddenly happy to say that they were playing this cool new game, you know, and that it, they were playing it at, you know, trying to hang out with the cool people who who were playing that game as well. So, you know, that for me is I think really important um, is that the only way I see pursuing it is to do it within a mix of ideas. Um, and, yeah, I think even in the long term, just I guess when I look at the number of even my friends and colleagues who have, you know, gone and worked at places like Yahoo Esports and the different kinds of companies where they've gone, you know, yeah. we're going to throw a bunch of journalists at doing a proper, you know, a proper series of coverage and let's make sure we're covering all the key sports and all the, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, and, and then at some point someone further up the chain who doesn't care about esports, you know, looks at kind of, we're spending how much money on this and who's buying ads in this area yet? Um, and, you know, and they pull the plug on it, sadly. So, yeah. um, it you know, it it is sad that it comes and goes. But, again, when you talk about, the, you know, things like HLTV where it's like, well, you know, the staying power aspect is important to the audience, you know, that I think I, I have no doubt that, you know, that with, um, you know, I feel like let's say if I was just trying to make Bite Side a place where we wrote news articles, I feel like it, t- it would take a long time to try to make that a destination for people to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'll hit the Bite Side homepage, you know, every day to catch up on the latest news, it's like, well, that's not the kind of funding that I'm putting behind it. That's, you know, I'm not going to be churning out multiple news stories every day. Um, yeah. But the idea of, of podcasts is kind of so much more of a, you know, you subscribe and then you will be delivered an episode when an episode is ready and you don't have to worry about it too much. You don't have to go and find it. It's going to come to you once you've decided that this is a thing you want delivered to you. And in that sense, I feel like, you know, there's there's a, a, a stronger play in my mind, and that's what I'm hoping to focus on within sort of more you know, podcast type categories because it's about kind of essentially building a subscriber audience. You know, subscriber not paying, but subscriber because yeah. they're now part of your people who Ecosystem. will just yeah sit yeah. back and enjoy the next episode when it's ready. And what's what's your view on YouTube v written content? Is the possibility of selling ads revenue and and the viral ability of YouTube outweighed by the production costs that come with it? Yeah, that's it's a good point. I think I, I've actually had people encouraging me recently to say, you know, say just every time you write an article, just basically read it out on camera and put it up on YouTube, you know, as a, as another, because, again, you know, when we talk about, I guess, the loyal audience within esports itself, it's like an awful lot of people on YouTube who that is their primary media source, you know, and so... Yeah. You know they're not they're never going to come and read the the written version of the story. Um, so is there a way to to do that simply? I think I've always felt like I used to work in video production in the you know as a uni job uh, back in the day, 
And so I've always kind of looked at video as a thing where you go, that I, I don't want to put out crap looking videos <laughs> and therefore yeah. it takes a lot of production effort yeah. um, to do a good job on it. Whereas I think, you know, I am starting to think about just doing some probably a similar thing but in a more Twitch context because I'm like, oh, there's, there's a much more comfortable relationship between somebody just switching on a camera and and having a more relaxed conversation in real time that just happens to be available for as a VOD later. Um, and, you know, that's just a different dynamic um, to that idea of wanting to go, I want to put out a, a, a polished, well-engineered YouTube video where in the context of podcasts as well, I partly realised that, you know, a podcast probably takes roughly as long to produce each week as writing a, you know, more than a basic news story, but like a substantial written piece of work, um, but not a full-on feature. Uh, and so, yeah, part of me at that time felt like, well, I could do a few podcasts a week because uh, I, if I was writing the story, I'd have used that much time anyway. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, it's interesting. Trying, it, it is definitely all about trying to weigh up the amount of effort required to produce something and then what does that piece of single piece of produced work actually return and in that Mm. sense it's like well you know self-publishing you know on a new website a piece of written work um i feel like that can kind of fade into obscurity pretty quickly um whereas something like a a podcast sort of probably has a little bit more uh lifespan to it in terms of people's discoverability yeah and another topic that i want to touch on and and comparison is Esports media compared to technology media, and especially talking about the hardcore enthusiast technology media. So, for myself, working at Femaltech and Corsair for a combined six years, doing PR and marketing with those, and working with a lot of the media, there's been a major shift, obviously away from magazines, as there has been with most, but then also away from written content into video content. Looking at people online like Linus Tech Tips, Jay's Two Cents, and in Australia, looking at Hardware and Box and Tech City and Rocket Jump Ninja as well. And a lot of that is due to the fact that, A, there's a lot less people working on there. If you look at Tech City, it's one guy, plus he hires an editor off-site. Rocket Jump Ninja is done all by himself. And, you know, the hardware and box, there's two of them, but they do it inside as well. Mm. And the availability of ads to run on, talking about pre-rolls, mid-rolls, you know, paid um, appearances at events. Um, Tech City is here with Intel at, at Intel Extreme Masters today as well. So where do you find the revenue generation in written media? Is it is it hard to sell the sponsorship slots? And is that something enticing you over to YouTube and video media as well? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good way to put it because, um, you know, I think written media, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of that sense of it is it's purely, uh, it's become a pure CPM play. You know, it's like, well, how many thousands of people are going to see this thing? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think... In the context of, of podcasts, there's definitely, you know, I've had, uh, you know, Intel running a sponsorship at the moment. And, yeah, I think for them they see that, you know, that, that it is about an association as much as it's about, um, you know, just about how many people are going to, you know, very directly hear this. Yeah. Um, that it's much more about a sort of a partnership and a relationship sort of an idea. Um, and, you know, the fact that I, you know, I, I read out the, the script for the ad that is running as pre-roll you know, for them, it's like, yeah, that is, again, it's kind of, it's a much more direct thing. It's not just, you know, uh, and, and it's, a, you know, their standard TVC 15 second clip that is running. It's like, it's a totally different sort of a thing than just having a banner ad sitting on a web page. Um, so I, I think there really is kind of a big thing there where, and again, you know, the, the biggest websites um, and particularly even, you know, like I used to work at CNET um, and, you know, 
that's kind of one of those, yeah, millions of pages type outlets that, um, you know, can both deliver scale and, you know, prestige for the fact that it's been around as long as it has mm-hmm. uh, and it covers everything um, that, you know, that those sorts of things are like, well, you know, the scale that I will operate at as well is is the kind of scale where, you know, all the big media agencies and people like that aren't interested in in talking to me necessarily at the moment. And so it is then about working with, you know, the 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 kinds of partnerships of people that, you know, get what it means to kind of be investing in the kind of the new niche areas uh, of the market rather than just saying we'll buy an ad on a web page. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I find that yeah, I find that very interesting for me personally. You know, reiterating what I was saying before is yeah, the shift towards YouTube media, and that very interesting, and in that bringing with the issues of possible um, you know paid reviews and and biased media and stuff that comes with all of that as well. Compared to you know, if you are writing a written media as a, as the journalist, you have no say over um, necessarily how many people click on it because you don't have the subscribers available to you. A lot of the time, you're not even aware of how many people are viewing it, but also you don't have access to change the banner ads or to the reps that are buying those banner ads. And that's kept very separate. My dealings with Kotaku as well, it's extremely separate. Yeah. When you talk to the editor about, can I buy a thing? He says, stop, you can't talk to me anymore. Go and talk to the advertising department. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, it, it's funny, right, that, you know, there was a, well, it's it's still a it's still a crazy thing on the internet where, you know, all the accusations of, of you know, traditional games journalists being, uh, you know, being somehow corrupt or this or that. Yeah. And it's like... That is like it is one of those kind of sacred things within so many traditional media outlets that it's it's just not ever you know you don't cross the floor on that sort of stuff. Whereas yeah, that in the online things that so many of those people who would complain about traditional media you know absolutely adore various of these YouTubers that you're like, why don't you ask that person about why they didn't disclose something? Um, and you know again that's I. I don't even disparage those people either. It's like that's just I I love you know every industry has the people who are awesome at doing it and the people who are kind of trash and and are happily just getting what they can while they can. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, it's like there's there's plenty of it out there within certainly in the, the the new influencer type areas because they also haven't been brought up in a trip more you know journalistic environment where you are told this is why your reputation matters and there is yeah. only long-term success if your reputation is clean. And, and people only say that when they don't agree with something or someone says something <laughs> yeah. that they don't like. You see that, you know, you see that with influencers, you see that with traditional media and you see that so much with the games media when someone doesn't agree and these tweets go viral quite often of a journalist kind of just sharing what people are commenting on their thing. Yeah. They don't agree with my 9 out of 10 so they're going to, you know, try to dox me and tell me I'm an idiot and follow me around on all my articles. Yeah, And that even happened in the Australian tech space. There was someone who didn't enjoy the way that someone reviewed things and they followed every single one of their reviews and commented negative things on all of them. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunately you get that and, you know, I'm understanding that more now working with Shade with a lot of traditional influencers. There's the good and the bad that come with the comment section and generally I've been trying to take the Joe Rogan approach of don't read the comments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's and, it. Uh, I, I wish yeah. I'd been paid by Apple all the times I was accused of being paid by Apple because maybe I'd have paid off a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Second, third, third, fourth house. Yeah, that's right. About it. Yeah, walking around with the with the notebook. <laughs> so, uh, touching once again on just talking about the media itself and the stories. For you, what what angles and stories aren't being pursued? You talked a little bit about you want to dig into things a bit more. You talked about you know maybe the traditional media. From what I'm understanding is looking a little bit too much about news and not investigation and such. 
So can you give me a, yeah, just a 30 second wrap of if I was wanting to start my journalism career, what should I cover to get myself noticed? Yeah. Um, I re- there's one of the areas I think is going to become more and more important and it is that dynamic between esports and influencers in a sense. I feel like, you know, that, that landscape of, of the sort of, you know, the, the, the Twitch world and where, you know, members of esports teams, you know, are also trying to build their personal brands and their personal profiles because, yeah. you know, I mean, even at global tier, it's, you know, it's that thing of you can't get paid enough by an esports team compared to how much you can earn if you have built your own personal audience. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen it sort of play out multiple times now with things like Overwatch League where it's like the stress of being part of an esports team is starting to be seen to be, you know, an incredibly high level of stress for these people. Um, but if they've been able to leverage, you know, their success and their abilities to start building a personal audience and have their own subscribers on something like Twitch suddenly, and, you know, again, it's not to say that it's a relaxing lifestyle being a Twitch streamer either. All of them I talk to, it's like that is hard work. But we're seeing a lot of esports pros kind of starting to make that choice, going, you know what, like that the responsibilities to the team and all these sorts of other big issues that are attached to having to be, you know, a good citizen who is a member of a of a team at an elite level um, yeah. is is too hard. And you know, I think I feel like there's going to be an interesting crunch in coming years where, um, you know, where esports is going to sort of potentially cease. Is it? Will it necessarily always have the best players of any given game within the best teams in the world? You know, or are the best players just going to start being like, "Yeah, I'm, I've got my cool, you know, I've got my cool audience, and that's that's all I need." Um, why would I put myself out there to be, you know, worked even harder than this for actually less money? Um, so I think there's kind of really interesting dynamics there, and I think it's probably just an example, I guess, at. At a big picture level, one of the favorite things I heard somebody say about trying to find the way toward, you know, breakout stories and really great journalism is the idea of revealing something that you've noticed people are starting to murmur about out there, but aren't, but no one's no one's written the story about it yet. Yeah, okay. You know, and so if you if you love this category and you you know and you immerse yourself in the culture of the category, then sometimes it might even be something that it's kind of sitting right there in in front of your face because you feel like it's so obvious. But if you stop and think about the idea that no one's actually written a really clear explanation of why this thing is happening or just to reveal the news of the fact that has anybody noticed that this thing is Mm. happening at the moment, Um, that they're the kinds of stories that will suddenly make everybody notice like, oh, my God, that person is on the pulse, you know, and and that can be a huge moment for someone to try to get a breakout story under their belt. And they're, and they're the Reddit threads that hit the front page all the time, 100%. When you read them, it's, you know, does anybody else or, you know, <laughs> do you do this or, you know, I've noticed this and people go, oh, yeah, why does that happen? You know, why does this weird thing happen every time X happens, Y happens? And yeah. everybody experiences it but no one talks about it. Mm. 100% right. And definitely look, putting my analyst hat on talking about what some of you said some of what you said, especially around influencers and esports, that's 100% our vision with Shade. And I haven't, you know, we purposely haven't talked too much about the business side of Shade as a whole, not necessarily in this podcast, but for anyone else. But that's 100% agree basically with what you're saying. You know, the idea for us is that it's content first. It's that it's not always necessarily the best players. It's people who are broadcasting their personality 
um, while playing games at the same time on various levels of skill, depending on who they are and various backgrounds and genders, sex, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we're trying to hit a lot with Shade really is it's content first. Um, but then there is still the possibility to partner with teams and with other people. You know, you look at FaZe, for example. They yeah, started off as example. YouTubers that turned professional and then kind of went back to YouTubing. You know, if you look at the people who founded FaZe or have been around since at least early, like Banks, for example, you know, when's the last time I saw him play a game on Instagram? I'd have no idea, but I know him as a gamer. But now he's more of a lifestyle, you know, rap scene, fashion influencer than anything else. But you yeah. still associate him so close with games. And, you know, negative and positive comments aside, one of the best things that I have heard in feedback with Shade from someone who's very hardcore in the gaming and landing and old games industry is that they're cool people who happen to play games. And that's what you see so much now. You're seeing with the ninjas, you're seeing with Drake now coming across to play these video games. You're seeing Trippy Red and other rappers working with Muselk, um, working with the Outpost Management Group and such as well. It's becoming such a mainstream activity. And also, once again, the likeness to the UFC is so much for me. If you look at these large Battle Royale tournaments, the Apex, the uh, Fortnite events that are happening globally, it's like the UFC where Dana White and, and the wider UFC need to pick you to fight doesn't matter if you're necessarily the best or whatever because, you know, they want Conor McGregor in the ring. Who cares yeah. if he's going to lose the boxing match against Floyd Mayweather because he's going to walk away with $50 million in his pocket. People are going to buy it because he's an interesting person. He's a good enough fighter, and that's where you're going to go to. And similar with these Battle Royale tournaments and touching on like what you said before is, is it viable for them financially over that period of time when they're going to be popular, which could be only six months to a year, you know, if you're looking at the trajectory of Ninja, who knows how big he will be in, in two years' time, hmm. is that how can you make the most amount of money in that period of time that makes the most sense to you? When you're not going to sign a $6 million a year NBA contract to play, you know, for 100 Thieves in League of Legends, one of the biggest teams, because they're only raising $30 million at a yeah. time, rather than getting $30 million a quarter from sponsors or from franchising fees. How can you, you know, for lack of a better term, cash out over that period of time and also provide the longevity? Because if you've got 160,000 Instagram followers, you can you can make a very decent living without putting in a lot of effort. I know a lot of influencers who just get fed brand campaigns. They make some cool posts and they have absolute blast with their life going to Coachella, going overseas because that's what they want to do. They put in the hard words, they they put in the hard yards, they reached a niche, they reached that size and now they can sit back and relax and, you know, quote unquote, retire for the rest of their life in a nice house with a dog and go on brand trips every now and then. So yeah, if you can cash in that capital over that time. And that's exactly what Shroud did, right? He, and he publicly said that. He's yeah. like, I'm over being a player. I'm getting so many viewers on Twitch. And, you know, and then he hit the number one subscribe channel on Twitch. What was it? 60,000 subscribers, you know, round about, round up or down about a million dollars a month in revenue coming into his pocket solely from that. So, yeah. yeah. Probably the right move for him. And it's, I think, you know, the path to getting there, that's, you know, there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of being a an exciting person worth watching um but yeah that's the that kind of critical thing is um is yeah that just the industry right now i feel like that'll be something that slowly it has to wash out in some way of of how do we sort of how do you balance the fact that you know it's it's like in australia there's that classic thing of you know of you want the best players in the world to represent your country in in traditional sports and then yeah. sometimes that player, it's like like my contract with, you know, this team means, you know, I actually have to kind of stay focused on this thing right now. And you'll sometimes have the people who, you know, kind of bang their fist and kind of go, but, you know, this should be the highest honour in the world. And it kind of feels like at some point is that the argument that people are going to make for esports is, you know, 
But like, but that's the highest honor to play for one of the biggest teams. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't put food on my table in the same way that this other thing does. And I have yeah. to put that first. And that's going to be kind of a really interesting thing as it plays out. Yeah, and you're always going to have in esports, and definitely, you know, not trying to downplay how hard it is to play a game at a top level and how important it is still to have that. But it's yeah. different, different horses to different courses, and I think that that's important to have those different avenues. And even if you go back to when I try to work with new brands, usually I try to align them at the same time with esports and influencers. Because if you talk about the issues you have in Australia, the esports players don't have enough reach in the teams, but they have the they have the authority to say, I'm a professional. I use this all the time. This is why this mouse is good because I'm good and I wouldn't use a mouse that makes me worse at the game. Same way a runner wouldn't wear shoes that gives them blisters and hurts their ankles. It's not going to happen. Yeah. But to bring the people in the door, to signal boost the campaign and to add a bit of flair, you then need to attach them to Badger Pants, to Ammunition, to Summit 1G, to Ninja or someone like that as well. We need to hit kind of both of those angles at exactly the same time. Yeah, and yeah. I think we're definitely on the same page with that. And and as well as, you know, you're always going to have the Usain Bolts, you're always going to have the Floyd Mayweathers, you're going to have the people that make a lot of money by being fantastic at the game. But realistically, that's not everyone. You know, realistically, so many boxers out there come out of boxing without much money and with, and with brain injuries. The same with when you're talking about NCAA with the NFL over in the US. There are so many college athletes that are very promising, amazing, and then all of a sudden they tear off their knee and then they're not playing once again. And that yeah. can happen in esports, can happen in traditional sports too. And that's why it's important. I think what we're really talking about is diversifying, making yeah. sure that you have some sort of Twitter following, some sort of Instagram following. So you can do a, a Shane Warne and transition into commentary or an Adam Gilchrist or someone like that. We've got a life after the sport. Yeah. And like that's a hard thing in Australia right now as well. You're yeah, talking to um, yeah, Magnet from Rainbow Six where it's like he's the captain of, you know, of a a fanatic team and he has a global level of recognition within his esport and he doesn't have good enough internet to stream yet, you know? And mm. so it's that horrible thing of, you know, desperate issues in Australia for people who are kind of in at the right tier. And so they want to be able to leverage that into, um, you know, into creating their following and build their audience. Um, but they live somewhere that hasn't won the lucky dip at the moment. It's like, man, some of those things are really hard. Yeah, and it becomes – I'd be really interested to actually have a hard – kind of a hard conversation with those people talking about playing an arguably Tier 2 game at a top level as well because I find that very interesting. They put in the same amount of effort as anyone else, but until that game reaches Tier 1, they're still going to be stuck at 10, 20, 30,000 Twitter followers if you want to use that as one of the metrics over the others. And, it can, you know, it must be difficult a lot of the time. You know, imagine – for example, uh, I guess I went through exactly the same thing in CSGO, dedicated as much time as I possibly could to be a semi-pro gamer, but realistically at our last tournament we played sixth. And then after that I said, look, I can't dedicate literally one more minute of my life to this. It's ruining my mental health and my relationship with the girlfriend at the time. I'm always tired, I'm cranky. You know, I need to move away to into the business side of things. And it must be really disheartening when you're playing a Tier 2 game that, you know, maybe has ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar tournaments. You might get a triple two overseas where it's there's a crowd there, but they're not there to see you, and you've only got a few thousand Twitter followers. You're not making a good amount of money, and then afterwards, really, do you ask yourself, should I have been a streamer? Should I have played Counter Strike on PC instead of Call of Duty on PC, which basically doesn't exist as an esport? And mm. you know, other questions like that too. Mm. Yeah. What's your answer? Do you have an answer for that? Uh yeah. For those guys. Um... <laughs> I mean, it's hard, right? Like, because what I, I even remember wasn't part of their story was that they'd been playing on console and, you know, had basically relearned to play on PC in order yeah, to. which is amazing in itself. Yeah, yeah which, which is really impressive that they pulled it off. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think when it comes to, you know, step one always seems to be when I talk to these people, it's like, you know, 
the first thing is that they play the game they're passionate about, right? You know, yeah. and, and it's that thing of you can't necessarily just decide like to chase a game because you think that's the one that might make you the money. It's like you've got to you got to play the thing that literally makes you happy to have spent you know twelve hours a day yeah. playing that game um, for whatever reason. And uh, I mean, I think a good point there is you know I'm, I think I feel like I feel quite bullish about sort of Rainbow Six long term, um, but again for the players. In there, where it's like you know, they're in six years' time when it reaches the end of its sort of ten-year plan yeah. to you know, and maybe by then it's really blossomed because it definitely has a great growth trajectory yeah. attached to it. I agree. Yeah. But you're like, you know, yeah, in in that many years' time, those players, you know, are probably getting that point. Well, you know, will have passed that point where they're like, yeah, like I've I moved into other things now. You know, that I'm moving to a different phase of my career, you know, that being that frontline yeah. player isn't necessarily the thing they want to be doing anymore. Um, and so, yeah, like you say, with sort of the, you know, ninjas of the world, it's like there's a window of time there where you want to capitalise on your success. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, how do, how do you get that just right? But but I think when it comes to that idea of, yeah, what, what, what choices are you making about which game to play or different things, it's like, you know, step one always does seem to be from everyone that I talk to that, you know, you can only play the game that you really, really love playing if you mm. want to be able to pursue it at that level. Yeah, and some of those anomalies are super interesting to me. And there's been some discussions before, I think even on the Jocko podcast, which I listened to a little bit about. There's got to be something a little bit odd about someone to be able to get to that high <laughs> level. You know, if you are if you want to dedicate your whole life to running faster, say you're Usain Bolt, that's ultimately that boils into what you're doing. There's got to be something special within you. Mm. And it always brings me back to these two players, one which is a guy called Jared Krenzel or Pig, who I used to manage many moons ago when he first became a professional player. And the only game he had installed in his computer was StarCraft II. That's it. And the same with Dan DeKing, you know, the Quake Live player who qualified from Australia on like 180 ping, which is ridiculous yeah. in itself, <laughs> to play in a Quake Champions tournament. He was the same. You know, he would wake up, he'd open Quake Live, and that's it. He had Quake Live, Internet Explorer, nothing else at that stage. No Steam, no Xfire, no nothing installed <laughs> on his PC, not even – Marcus's office and that, you know, just so laser focused and you'll play that game start to finish every single day and, you know, reap the rewards from being a good player as part of that. And there definitely is something to be said for sticking around with your game because, you know, being with, uh, following Jared's journey for a long time, he was in a similar space, you know, Starcraft two was a tier one esport globally, but he was maybe a tier two or three player, but he stuck through getting 30 Twitch viewers, you know, struggling for me to be able to pull enough funding to just send him to LAN events, you know, him having to pull a lot of his own funding to go over to IM and Cologne and such to then he hit that catalyst when StarCraft 2 went free to play and then it had its 20th anniversary. His stream went from, you know, a slight growth trajectory, boom, a thousand concurrents. And then, you know, if you're at a thousand current viewers in a Twitch streamer, that's it. You've made it essentially, you know, it's much easier. You can open many more doors. You're making a good amount of revenue from streaming full time. He became a global commentator and then you know the luxuries of that i guess were afforded mm. to him i mean a good example as well i think is that you know jared's hit on ideas like you know running kind of coaching clinics and things as part of his you know sort of streaming idea that um yeah i think if you want to pursue that sort of side of things you almost need to think of yourself as a programmer in a tv style sense as well right you know, yeah you're thinking of you know, what's the hook for why someone will tune in on a Wednesday night or, you know, yeah, are there sure. different angles? Yeah. And as much as he is a pure StarCraft guy, I think he's, you know, I've noticed on his stream that, yeah, that there's certain times it's like someone will get the chance to, you know, be coached by him for a session and everybody's watching, everybody learns something, but that one person is getting that really awesome kind of direct engagement by, 
by being coached by someone who you know is part of the the top tier of how this sport is is covered so you know he knows the ins and outs and can give you really great advice yeah and that's super simple and one of the genius ways that he drew revenue for himself in the early days that i loved was doing 10 to 15 hours of coaching a week at 30 to 60 an hour and that essentially paid for his living expenses you know over that time obviously you have to live cheaply but esports isn't always glamorous especially (laughs) in 2011 you know when he's earning two thousand dollars a year from certain sponsors and such too so yeah, definitely got him through. So, mate, we've been talking for a while now. Where, what's what's up next for you? What's happening? Um, oh, geez, that's a good question. Um, I mean, as a you know, a freelancing is a big part of my life now, and so it's yeah. um, you know, a big part of the focus is is just you know trying to kind of nail the angles on all that sort of stuff. So, I know my my big stories at the moment um, still uh, you know working on a few things for for AFR and for ABC. Uh, and then, yeah, really sort of the, I think the rhythm on my own podcast stuff is starting to work well. Um, I've, I really feel like I've been in my own, you know, learning phase over the last sort of six months, um, just trying to get the sort of the rhythm going and making sure that, you know, everything gets as smooth as possible. Um, but yeah, now there's some sort of some plans up the sleeve to add, add another one or two shows into the mix in coming months, um, which, yeah, should mean I'll be sitting at about, yeah, five podcasts either on a weekly or or sort of twice a month type basis, yeah, fantastic. Um, which will keep me well and truly busy. Yeah, extremely busy. That yeah. sounds fantastic. <laughs> and if someone wants to follow you online, where can they do so? Yep, so um, best place to find me is on Twitter. I am at Seamus, um, just my first name. Uh, and, yeah, find all the podcasts and things over at biteside.com. All right, fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. Cheers. And thank you to listening in to the Big Esports Podcast. This has been episode number 34 with Seamus. You can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 34 to get any of the show notes or links to what we talked about today. Once again, we're sitting up here in Sydney at the Intel Extreme Masters. We're recording plenty more podcasts over the next three days for all of you, so make sure you stay tuned and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of Season 1 and Season 2 has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.